Welcome to Sounds Out of Time. I'm your host, Matt Kohut. My guest today is bassist Gene Perla. Gene's name might not be familiar to you, but the musicians he's performed with or recorded with are household names. Miles Davis, Nina Simone, Sonny Rollins, Sarah Vaughn, Frank Sinatra. 50 years ago, Gene was playing with Elvin Jones, one of the greatest jazz drummers of all time. Jones helped to define the sound of John Coltrane's seminal recordings from the 1960s. His playing is as instantly recognizable as Coltrane's or McCoy Tyner's. Gene began playing with Jones in the early 1970s, a few years after Coltrane's death. In 1972, one of those gigs was recorded at the Lighthouse Cafe in Los Angeles. The lineup was Jones and Perla, along with saxophonists Dave Liebman and Steve Grossman. The album that followed, Live at the Lighthouse, captured a band that crackled with energy. I caught up with Gene to talk about this album and what it was like to play with Elvin Jones. Here's our conversation. Well, Gene Perla, welcome to Sounds Out of Time. Thank you. You've been playing for, gosh, I don't know, 50 years at this point. You have a 50-year career as a professional musician. And in your biography, you cite Charlie Hayden's playing on The Shape of Jazz to Come as something that inspired you to become a bassist. I'm curious what resonated so deeply with you about his playing on that album. Because I was trying to be Bill Evans, too, on the piano, because I took 10 years of classical piano lessons and then uh, kind of dropped it when I got to school. And then when the bug bit me at 22 years old, I then went to Berkeley and really applied myself and practiced. But I realized, I came to the realization that I was never going to be Bill Evans, too. And I was a bit of a funk at the time. And uh, a friend of mine said, hey, this new record, man, come on and check it out. So I went and listened to The Shape of Jazz to Come with Charlie playing bass. No chordal instrument on that record. And I listened to him and I said, he plays out of tune. His time is funny and uh, I don't know, some of the choice of notes, but it was so organic, the sound, you know, was uh, that's the best word that I can use, natural, you know. And uh, so the very next day I went to Berkeley and said, I, I'm no longer a piano major, I'm a bass major. I was 24 years old and I went and bought a $600 K bass and uh, life went on. The rest is history, as they say. Was there any track on The Shape of Jazz to Come that really just punched you in the gut as far as the bass was concerned? Peace. Mm. Peace, the ballad, right? I call it a ballad, you know, that slow thing. And when Charlie plays... I call it the bridge, and he plays just with the, you know, the drums, and he's bowing that middle part, and uh, I'm saying, right, you know, he doesn't bow very well either, <laughs> you know. But it was just, ooh, it just, you know, filled me with uh, enthusiasm of uh, how gorgeous music can be, and it doesn't have to be so damn perfect, you know. Yeah. Let's listen to a few bars of peace from the shape of jazz to come.
you mentioned the idea that this was a pianoless group, which is a great segue, actually, into the album we're going to talk about today. You were the bassist on the Elvin Jones 1972 recording live at the Lighthouse, which is 50 years ago now. And this was also a pianoless recording. And so I thought maybe we'll start there. What was it like for you as a bass player when you found yourself in these pianoless settings? Say a little bit about the way you think of your role when there's not a chordal instrument as opposed to when there is. Well, uh, back then, um, I was struggling just to be able to, uh, you know, learn and, and get the experience and play. Uh, as time went on and the more experience I got, um, I came to see the, the restriction that occurs without having chords. When there are chords, it's a wonderful thing for me because that opens up my uh, opens up an opportunity for me to um, uh, delve into a har- harmony and uh, you know stepping outside of the chord, playing um, different notes that are not so basic in terms of the chord structure, but with um, Elvin's group and other groups that I played where there were no chordal instruments, it, it becomes more of a has become more of uh, sticking to the roots, uh, sticking to the chord tones. Although the more the other members of the group feel to me that they are really in control of what they're doing, I still have found that there's flexibility in there. But I do have to keep the form going because especially if the horn players step outside, as many of them do, step outside of the harmony, uh, pretty soon it's just going to get chaotic. So I have to remember to, you know, at least somehow outline the form, you know, along with the chords that belong where they belong. Yeah, ultimately somebody has to keep the foundation in place there harmonically. Now let's back up a little bit. How did you meet Elvin Jones and how did you become part of the group that was on the date that night live at the Lighthouse? Well, when I was at Berkeley and learned about the jazz scene, uh, I did a lot of of research and listening and discussing with other musicians uh, and uh, listening to records. I came to the conclusion that number one, I had to, if I wanted to be really successful and get up on top as, as I wanted to do, get up on top of the scene, the jazz scene, I had to go to New York. That was number one. And then number two was, when I go to New York, who, who do I want to play with? What's turning me on the most? And number one was Elvin Jones. And number two was Miles Davis. And I kind of thought, I'm, I'm probably never going to get next to Miles because of my uh, inferior, I- inferior technique, <laughs> you know, so, uh, um, but it turned out that I got to play with Miles on a recording, so uh, you never know what's going to happen, but it was Ellen that I went to New York, and prior to going to New York, when I was still a piano player, one summer, I, because my folks lived in Jersey, I went into New York and searched him out, he was playing at the old five spot, and I asked him, could I sit in on piano, and he said yes. And so when I finally went up, he asked me, he said, what do you want to play? And I said, nothing too fast. And he says, me neither. (laughs) That was fun. And then I had made the switch now to bass, and now I'm living in New York. And he was playing, uh, he had a steady gig at a club called Pookie's Pub, which, by the way, a record is coming out on Blue Note that was recorded there. 
And so I went by this club, Pookie's Pub, to sit in with him. And I sat in twice playing one song each time. And my guess is he probably, you know, maybe he'd remember me, but that was that. Now, I'm doing a gig in Boston, back where I went to school and used to live. I was called to go up there and play a gig, a week-long gig. And during the day, I was in the lobby of the Berkeley School, where I had gone to school. And a phone call came in from WGBH-TV. And they said, uh, the gal shouted out to us. There were a few of us standing in the lobby. She says, this is WGBH-TV. This is Elvin Jones needs a bass player right now. I, all I had was my electric bass. And I jumped in the car and I put the gas pedal to the floor. Fortunately, there were no uh, uh, officers of the law along the way. <laughs> and um, I got to the radio station maybe about 15 minutes or so before a live half hour show that Elvin was doing with Joe Farrell. It was just a trio. They were playing in town with Jimmy Garrison on bass. Jimmy went to New York and he missed the plane to come back. So I got there in time and somehow tuned up the bass. Joe was trying to show me this music and I, it was going, you know, one in one ear out the other. So I just let my ear go and, and uh, I got a copy of the tape afterwards and I listened to it. And uh, you can hear me screwing up here and there because I wasn't familiar with some of the songs. But I got in the pocket, as they say, with him on time. And um, I think that stuck to him because a few days later, someone told me that they had Elvin, they were with Elvin and Elvin said, I played with this white guy on electric bass and he made it sound like an upright because I always try to get that more warm round sound of a, of a contrabass, you know, that as opposed to an electric. So a little time went by, a few months and uh, his bass player, I don't know what happened, but I got a phone call and that was it. But I attribute it to that that time that uh, you know I was able to sit in on electric bass with him we talk about being in the right place at the right time oh baby <laughs> got that right <laughs> so you're playing with Elvin on a regular basis was it a regular group with Dave Liebman and Steve Grossman on saxophones when I first joined the quartet was with Joe Farrell and Frank Foster and I was able to get Lee to come and sit in, and Elvin hired him. We had three tenors at that point. Ugh, long songs. <laughs> and, uh, and then Joe left. And then I got Steve Grossman in, and Frank left. And that's when that started. I guess that was in sometime 71. <clears throat> and they stayed there until Miles Davis came to the Village Vanguard where we were playing and, and said to Elvin, he says, I want Liebman. And Elvin said, okay, you got him. So that's what happened. We had Azar Lawrence came in after that. And, uh, and then I left. So I was with him for two and a half years. So let's hone in on the Lighthouse gig itself. What do you remember about that specific night? Was it memorable to you at the time? Yeah. <laughs> How so? Uh, well, it was it was memorable because I was uh, happy that they decided to record, um, and um, but in terms of the music, um, we were just playing our tunes, you know, like we did, and um, I think all of us agreed that we played better. Elvin 
was not part of this uh, discussion, but between Steve and Dave and myself, we thought that, you know, not that we played badly, but some nights kind of stand out. And I, as I remember, that night did not, wasn't like a special, you know, but we were playing well together, obviously, because that record made an impression on a lot of people. But other than that, I don't know, it was just wonderful to be able to play with Jones, you know, just, it was heaven on earth every night. It was always, it was a task. It, it was, it was really work, you know, hard work working with him uh, because there was no let up. I mean, it was just constantly, his, his focus was so centered uh, that, uh, you know, it was, it was like the, the rock of Gibraltar, you know, and I had to climb that baby. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. His energy level is so incredibly relentless. He is like a perpetual motion machine when he's playing. So there's the focus and there's the sheer energy of keeping up with him. And I can imagine that was just a workout every single time you played with him. Yeah. Well, you know, the, I remember they were, it happened a few times that I was with him that I'd really start to run out of steam because especially with Lehman and Grossman, those guys would just play and play and play. So I'm there, you know, laying those quarter notes out and trying to, to, to you know, push the time along. And I'd start to, you know, the energy, I could feel the energy started waning in me, you know, and the way I'd get it up was I would scream and I would loud scream sometimes. I'd just scream on the band saying, ah, and that kind of thing. And that would re-energize me to keep going. And I remember one night we were playing at this club. It was called Slugs. When we finished the set, uh, I went out and, and sitting there in one of the tables was George Mraz, who was, uh, he passed away now, but he was a marvelous musician, a complete, complete control over the instrument, like, you know, no one any better than him. Um, anyway, he was sitting there, and uh, I came over to him, I knew him, and I, to say hello, and he said to me, because I was up there screaming, right, he said, Pearl, he said, you must be crazy. <laughs> I like that. That was good. Do you have any favorite track when you listen back to the Lighthouse gig or the record and say, wow, that one, really, we were hitting it there? I have to uh, admit, Matt, that I've never listened to the entire album. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me refresh your memory a little bit here. Two of the tracks that I think are really wonderful on it, one of them, and specifically where you're playing is concerned, one is called The Children Save the Children, where you're really walking and just holding the whole thing together. And then, of course, there's Sweet Mama, where your solo really anchors the entire track. It's really the set piece of the track. Were those both pieces that would come up in the set on a regular basis? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they were. They would, yeah. The first tune uh, was written by a, a classmate at Berkeley, uh, Don Garcia, and uh, the Sweet Mama is, a, is you know, it's, it's, it's a very simple song. It really is a vehicle for a bass solo, and I wrote that one. <laughs> Thank you. 
looking forward here, do you have anything coming up that you'd want to let people know about? Do you have any dates or any recording projects that are in the works that you'd like to let people know? We called a group, the Lighthouse Project, mm -hmm. and we will be playing at New Blue in New York City on June 30th. And uh, in the band is Dave Liebman, so he and I from the original band. And I'm so excited to have Jerry Berganzi playing saxophone with us. Uh, he was in one of my groups years ago, and we played here and there through, the, through time. And I'm so happy to, to be able to be on the stage with those two saxophone guys. I'm really looking forward to see what, what they're going to do, because you know, I know they can do stuff. And our drummer is Adam Nussbaum, who's, uh, I describe him, uh, playing with him for me is like I'm sitting on a very comfortable couch, just enjoying myself. So, yeah, it's, it's a good band. And after that, we'll be doing the Detroit Jazz Festival in September. And we've got a couple of other gigs, one in uh, March of uh, April of next year. So, yeah. Well, Gene Perla, I want to thank you so much for speaking to me for Sounds Out of Time. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. If you like Sounds Out of Time, please sign up at soundsoutoftime.substack.com for playlists, transcripts, and recommended listening. Special thanks to Jim Gilhini for suggesting this episode and connecting me with Gene Perla. And thanks, as always, to digital guru Matt White. And remember... If your ear is thirsty for something new, try something old. Until next time, this has been Matt Kohut, bringing you sounds out of time.